Hello and welcome. Thank you for downloading this podcast. Please let us know what you think by following and connecting with us on our social media accounts on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Vero, and Tumblr. And don't forget to share the show with your friends and family as well as leave a positive rating on your podcast provider as it helps other people find the show. My name's Wasim Imam Saheb and this is the Wonderful Words podcast, a show where I get to have conversations with authors about life, their books, their writing and the wonderful world of literature itself. My guest for this episode is Meena Kandasamy, author, poet, translator, essayist and activist. This interview was such a fruitful one because Mina speaks a lot about how she marries these various disciplines into her work itself. We also chat about her second novel, a work of autofiction entitled When I Hit You or The Portrait of a Writer as a Young Wife, which drew upon her own experience within an abusive marriage. It was selected as the book of the year by The Guardian, The Observer, Daily Telegraph, Financial Times, and was shortlisted for the Women's Prize of Fiction in 2018. I must also apologize for the quality of the audio in this interview. It was hampered due to technical difficulties, but I still think it is a wonderful interview that you can enjoy and gain so much from. common widely held opinion is that writers dig the ruins, scour the past, always put themselves there, yes. But at strange times, they put themselves elsewhere. My husband's railing at me, slapping me, throwing my laptop across the kitchen, forcing me to delete a manuscript, a non-fiction, book in progress, because somewhere in its pages, there's a mention of the word lover. He accuses me of carrying my past into our present, and the stressor is evident enough. But there is no hope or space for the future to flourish. At this point, I'm not listening to you. I have no intention of responding. I'm thinking of being at a point in the future when I would be writing about this moment, about this fight, about the stinging slap that marked my cheeks that only stopped when I had deleted what I had written, about how I'm forced into arguing about freedom of expression with the man I have married, about the man I've married with whom it has finally come to this. This argument about the freedom of expression, thinking of how I'm someday going to be writing all this out, and I'm conscious that I'm thinking about this and not about the moment. And I know that I have already escaped the present and that gives me more. I just had to wait for this to end, and I can write again. I know that because I'm going to be writing about this, I know that this is going to end. Small excerpt. Thank you so much. Um, I wanted to start talking about your writings, your writing process, and in particular, your from the your writing process evolution from the Gypsy Goddess, which was your first novel, and to this, and how it's changed. And you've written a third novel now, and so how has the writing process changed for you from book to book? Thanks, thanks, for asking for this question. So my first two books were. Translation of a Dalit ritual, my non Indian listeners is about you know, people in India have this caste system, so people are treated as a So, uh, it was you know, these two books of translation I worked on them in 2003 2004, roughly about two decades ago. But I think it was a great in terms of apprenticeship or understanding that you know, you have to be so exact about words because if you get a word that you know, even slightly off, you've done the meaning of, or you'd not be so vehement enough, or you'd not be as articulate as it was, like how do you, how do you, what do you deal with the sentence, like what we see. I think in some ways it allowed me to work like in the, in the factory of language kind of thing, what do you actually, how, how much you, you can you have to be. And I also think because it's not got my own name on it in the sense of it's not my writing, I still could, you know, disassociate from it. And I learned very early on that that actually helps make your writing more sharper because you're like, this is writing and this is not me. Like, I'm an element of which you could really give it your 
second thing was then I then my next writing was poetry. So when I did when I did poetry again, there was this yeah huge amount of uh, uh, obsession obsession about you know words and you know trying to trying to make it like every word count, but every every breath count, you know. And uh, so then then again like trying to be as brief as possible. So yeah, poetry also in that sense was you know, part of my process. And I was not sharing it with other people for a long time, but I was writing a lot of poems just to. Um, and then uh, I would write essays or that, that kind of thing, but I don't think that's any process involved. It's a lot about making arguments and doing the same thing as you would do if you were in front of the camera or on the stage. You know, just be really articulate, powerful, come with a lot of arguments. But then I think when I started working on Gypsy Goddess, so this story always fascinated me, but it started fascinating me even more from about, you know, the late 2000s. And I was like, I'm going to write this story, even though it's, you know, from 1960. Mm-hmm. And I did the you know, uh, field research in terms of going there, but also looking at a lot of documents from that period, spending time. So I do speak Tamil, and my father is from, you know, uh, a kind of the broader geographical area where this massacre takes place. Uh, so, you know, traveling there was kind of returning home to see what my father had escaped and what kind of conditions there were. My father was landless, so it, I could actually understand, you know, so ourselves coming. But the book took so long to write and to finish the you know, I might have started travelling there possibly in early two thousand six, five, six. And then when I submitted the first final draft, my agent it was in October two thousand twelve. So it took me seven years to get everything right. And that's also when I realized I'm such a pain slow writer. And um, and so yeah, I think uh, I think well, I I realized that I really do suffer from uh, the poet's handicap. In one way, it is very strong um, in, because it makes your language very rich and like every single word counts. But on the other hand, the handicap is that you will never be feeling happy if you write the line she got out of her bed and opened the door. Like un- unless unless context driven or it's plot driven or something about it, it's important you just don't write like very anything superfluous or anything like, you know, so I think, yeah, there's that. Yeah, you can see, you can see it in your writing that you've married your your occupations or of, of being a translator and a poet and an activist and everything in one. And it's it's beautiful to to read. And I think because I've listened to a lot of interviews with you and 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 stuff, I, when I was reading the book, I, I sort of had your voice in my head. So like it recorded your voice. And so I was reading uh, your work in your voice. It was very, very pleasurable as well. So, <laughs> so um, versus Gypsy Goddess, how long did it take you to write uh, When I Hit You? Oh, that's, um, you know, that's interesting because you see, uh, this is why also, just because, you know, your show is about being a woman, being a person of color, and mm-hmm. being, you know, uh, it's more than, yeah, you call queer, what I call uh, still figuring out mm-hmm. sexual identity. Um, I think it's, it's really interesting, you know, because um, uh, with women, and especially, see, I would never, I would never consider myself a woman of color until I left India. Yeah, yeah. Which was a woman. <laughs> I was 25, so before that, but even coming back to, you know, not being just a woman, just being a woman, all our writing gets dismissed as, oh, it's autobiographical, it's autobiographical, and you can, you can be like, I'm the hero, and people will be like, she wrote a semi-autobiographical yes. novel, and you're like, you know, constantly, like, you could be doing, like, the most beautiful things, and so there was the part of me which was like, so, you know, as a very young person, like, 17, 18, I was like, what about that item I'm going to write about myself because there is a different woman, this autobiography, that pushes it on it. So, yeah, uh, in the middle of writing Gypsy Goddess, I had this, you know, fabulous four months of marriage. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, there was a whole idea that, you know, as I just read in text, I'm going to write about it. But I still had this, you know, common sense of what I'm say, a very political sense that I'm going to finish the other novels first. Mm-hmm. So, I'm going to finish Gypsy Goddess, you know, make this whole political novel out there. So that I don't get dismissed as this autobiographical writer. And then because, you know, women don't have any stories except our own blah, 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 all of this construct around it. So I actually spent time writing this novel. All the while in my head, I was like, the other story is going to wait. So I finished that. And then I was like, so that novel, it got sold. And then I spent a few months editing it. And then it appeared in 2000. 
once it appeared, I got the headspace to actually put myself into this book. I was like, I took some early, I was taking some early notes already in 2012 once I had finished the draft, but I didn't know what the direction was, but I think the writing itself took about two years. So yeah, from seven years and working on <laughs> working on something, I had gone down to, I think, a writing time of two and a half years. And many things changed with me. One of them is that I was not living with my parents anymore. Mm-hmm. The other thing was also, I think, I realized that I write very nicely when I'm absolutely alone. Really alone with me. At that point, I was also writing with a reward system. Like, if I write this many words, I'm going to go and have a fag at the end of it. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to get, a, you know, like my cigarette nicotine addiction and my writing seem to, you know, work completely in tandem with each other. So, because I was also like, you know, uh, young enough, but also, you know, earning from like the first book, uh, I could do things like the, from the advanced money, I could like give myself writing residency. So just go and put myself into, I didn't care what, you know, whether it was three star or one star, really an absolutely decrepit hotel, just put myself somewhere where I could be alone with my writing. Wow, thank you. It's it's a really, really lovely novel. I, I I struggle saying lovely because obviously the subject matter is very, very tense. But yeah, it's a Yeah, yeah. It's a very, very amazing, amazing it's it's powerful and it's important work. Um I wanted to also ask to talk to you about um the structure of the novel itself because I wanted to talk talk a little bit about that because uh you also employ a bit of cinematography in it in, in terms of the style and the narrative and also you use a lot of epigraphs in between chapters um so i think um uh, one of those things that i understood uh, uh was that as much as i was doing my own writing i was collecting these epigraphs through the process of like you know through these two three years of you know uh, of you know living with this novel so to say so yeah I said to you, 2012, I finished this, and 2017, the book appears. But at least for four years or five years, I was like, you know, having this epigraphs being with me. Because I think of them as not just a reading space, but I think, them, think of these little poems as, you know, telling a story of their own, you know. And um, because one thing that you realize, at least I realized was seeing through the is that you're not blamed for being Meena Kandasami, you know, you are blamed for being a woman poet. So you, there is a certain social outlook or social, uh, you know, perception within, like, let's say, at least, you know, in that case, India, in terms of what a woman poet represents to society. She's disrupted, she has loose morals, or rather she has no morals, and uh, she's defiant, and then um, she's a feminist, so by, you know, by default, and then she's so obsessed about her own work and therefore she's, you know, selfish, not selfless. There's all of these constructions. So when someone is actually going off to you, it also becomes a little bit more interesting to see are they going off to you, the person, or are they going off to the fact that you are an outspoken women poet? And to understand that, you know, we always like to trace ourselves in terms of, you know, on somebody's daughter, but I think there's a certain lineage that comes to you through writing, like it's not hereditary, but it's a, it's like you're seen in the line of all these rebellious women, you're seen in the line of Kamala Das, you're seen in the line of all these women who've gone ahead of you, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think it's so important that their voices work in this book. And so I think they helped me to, you know, once it came down to the question of chapterization, it kind of... Uh, kind of help me even though I think you know when you're a writer and this goes on behind the scenes there's not a lot of I think poetry to it obviously the poetry is how it speaks in its best language but I think obviously you have you know you think a little bit like you know it's something that's a prologue something that's an introduction something that tells you about the story without being necessarily the story itself so how does that play then you know there's going to be something you know, we just have flashback and then what do you put in the flashback? Something in a that shows this woman in a happy period, something that shows coping mechanisms. So obviously when you know, you don't think think like this this Scottish I mean the idea structure always stays with you, but um for me uh, in the, it's 
watching in the back of my mind. But just for me to get this writing done, I think for me it was much more important to get, get a lot of these. You know, it's a very fragmentary book, so it was to just to capture like all these little moments, you know, these moments of drama, these moments of high tension, and I think a part of it is because of a certain domesticity of the novel, but also the what I would call the fact that you know there are these little interactions that leave long shadows. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, and in in that way, in, when you said it's very fragmented and and stuff, in that way you were able to sort of capture domestic the domestic violence that occurs in an intimate relationship and in in an intimate space in such a broad um, manner. It's I was like, and during the, while I was reading the book, it, it's a very difficult book to read, but I also like I had to read parts of it and I had to put it down because. it's so relatable and you know men like this you've seen things like this you've experienced things like this and so it's and it's little things like you said it's it's everyday things and it also made me think about how you know the idea of violence in a relationship is portrayed within the medium within fiction normally i mean it's sold to us in a particular way that that it has to be violent it has to be a particular bloody type when you know there's so much more to that and the book like i said it just it showcases the entire perspective of 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 violence in intimate relationship i think i think i think this you you know you only talked about cinematography as well you know the influence of cinema on my own writing mm-hmm. uh, something that i did i'm taking my next book you know exquisite characters characters of film like that and i'm not going to get too much into it so yeah i'm fascinated by movies but i'm also fascinated by what they actually mean in popular culture so because the in popular culture there is some law in the cinema the idea is that a woman get you know beat no or behave like you know thrown away her makeup comes off and you know her clothes are pulled and 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 they sometimes see that you know the cinematic portrayal of violence is a, a kind of a social The social performance in in a sense that you know basically a lot of men to get off it you know mm-hmm. always feel that way but you know when you portray violence in this manner are you are you with the women because does she want to be seen this way mm. does she want to be seen does she want to be seen in the state of absolute horrifying indignity would she want it for herself or would she want to tell her story on her own terms in which case um, I think the portrayal would be different, you know. And so the idea is that uh, because um, you sometimes hear that men clap when a when a you know men in theaters clap when a husband slaps the wife, or when the hero slaps you know a modern outspoken you know arrogant quote unquote arrogant heroine. And so, are you going to pander even if it's to portray violence? Are you going to pander to you know men who can? vicariously live off it or you know like you know just get this absolute pleasure because they watch this happening you know are we pandering to this voyeurism in a sense so that was also i think actually one of those technical things about writing this book is because not was to to have obviously you know the narrative intact you know high dignity intact but also to see that there's not a single page in which some man can read this and say hey this woman said she did you know hey good is coming like I didn't want. It's impossible to cheer like unless you feel like you know, like you're an absolute moron. Mm-hmm. I think that you're not going to be able to cheer at any point because at the end of it, it's the women who wins. But at the end of it, but even through it, the man comes across looking like an absolute idiot. You know, mm-hmm. he can be enraged, he can be in control, he can be this or that. But there is an element. He's going to appear pathetic. Mm-hmm. And you know, and these are these are things that you cannot say. Like it's much more easy to say to Basin that oh, the guy has to be desperate and pathetic, but at the same time he should be violent and crazy, and you know, doing this kind of absolutely misogynist, um, macho shit. But mm-hmm. you know, writing is different because I can't just write this and say that's how you read it. So yeah, they all have to be built into to the telling of the story. and it's a testament to your skill i mean the man, the man, the fact that you achieved this what was also very like i think surprising for me is that i found it 
it I didn't intend to laugh here and there, but it was kind of funny. Not in the sense of the violence, but I mean, like he, the, the 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 narrator's husband is such a character that his the depths of his his evil is is it it pushes you to the point of laughter at how insane it is. I, I think that you know, I think a lot of ways in which people cope, and I I I say this out of experience, but also I say this out of observation, especially a large amount of it is observation, is that people. One of the coping mechanisms of people under duress, people under, you know, oppression, is to make jokes about it, is to laugh about it, is to, mm. is to make fun of it, and I think that's uh, that's what comes through there. Like, you know, how do you survive from this statement? But also, how do you? Because to, to to there is one thing about terror. Obviously, there is a huge element of you know, whether it's domestic or, you know, when when there's a question of why there's also a question of terror built into it. You're supposed to be terrified all the time. That's the only way violence can work. You're supposed to be in fear all the time. That's the only way violence can work. But how does a person get over their fear? Because sometimes you have to laugh at this. Like that's, that's, it, doesn't, it doesn't only give you courage, because for courage you may need many other things. You may need actual physical strength. You may need you know outside support. I think it's much more logistical. But you know when you laugh at something, you make it absurd. And when you laugh at something, you get over your fear of it, and I think yeah, there's this element of obviously, you know, mm-hmm. looking at it, and I also think laughter and you know humor is something that lets you allow allows you to be telescopic, like mm-hmm. lets you to remove yourself from the situation to to make it look funny. But yeah, mm-hmm. I get. Speaking of therapeutic, you mentioned. I mean, you took very long to write this book. How was the ex- emotional experience writing it? Because, uh, like you said, it was inspired. It's autofiction, like you mentioned in other interviews. It's inspired by an experience that you've had. But how was it, you know, living with this for such a long time? Um, uh, it's it's a very interesting question, Wasim, and I don't know how to answer it because um, uh, there's there's many answers to it, you know. So, so one of the things about this work. Um, or, or rather about writing trauma is the question of, uh, and I keep thinking about it, it's like, okay, this happened to me, and I'm writing about it, but obviously, you know, just the, f- one is also the question of, you know, literary reception, but also what is literature? Literature is not going to say, oh, this is a great novel because it's happened to me now. People are not going to say this is great writing because it's happened to me now. It has to be great writing irrespective of whether it happened to me, or it has to be great writing in spite of the fact that it happened to me, that even though it happened to me, even though it happened to her, she was able to put all these words together in such a nice manner instead of, you know, making it a solistic narrative or making it, you know, a sympathetic narrative or a narrative that wants you to cry or, I don't know, like feel bad for this person or whatever it is. So you, you don't want to create, like, writing where somebody sympathetic to you. You want it to be, you know... But all apart from all of this, you also want it to be literature. So there is that that is that aspect of it, you know. You know, I don't want any as I would like to say any commendation of bravery. <laughs> I want you to treat it as literature. So yeah, there's this, which allowed me as it is. I think as as a writing practice, it allowed me great space because like oh, I'm not going to feel bad for myself. My task was to put the most perfect sentence on the page, you know. Not about oh, poor Mina, but this question like. Oh, what's the best you can do, me not to write about this? And I think it completely takes it away, in terms of you know what um uh, what it is, because obviously what you're writing about is distressing, sad things you want to forget. But at the same time, you're like, oh, this is all the things, like this is all the sadnesses, and this is how I'm going to you know make a jewel out of them, or make art of them, or make something out of them that others can see and appreciate for what it is. So in a, in a lot of ways, it's like distilling pain into something beautiful. Um, so that that was my intention. But then also the idea is that, you know, it's your story, uh, or, you know, many, many elements of it are your story. I would still not like anybody to read it as a memoir because the idea was that, you know, as I said, there was so much of process into it or, you know, trying to make it an outside you know, like make this narrative stand in for everybody, which means not telling a lot of my own story or where I come from. And, you know, there's very little autobiographical stuff in terms of who this unnamed narrator is. 
mm. or you know the way the story is constructed the narrative arc is constructed so all of this is like for me big part of it is the writing process but also the question of trauma for me is okay so this happened to like ha- happened to happen to me you know like individual so it's an individual thing but how is this going to be easier to write than let's say what happened in Kiel when mummy where 44 dalit men women and children you know untouchable landless laborers are burned to death so isn't that a big trauma as well like how do you cope with writing that trauma like mm-hmm. um, and because the thing is how do you even do justice to it because you, you it was not you and how do you really you didn't live then you you speak a different language and whatever it is like irrespective of where your father comes from or how poor he might have been you i didn't experience any of that first hand so how do you embody that poverty that desperation and above all that militancy so for me the question is uh you know obviously that 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 is as traumatic as this and you know you're living both kinds of trauma again so in a sense i think for me it was uh, it's, it's as painful as the other book was or you know a different type of pain but painful nevertheless and i still think that a lot of my engagement in terms of writing is to engage with different types of you know traumatic things or, or painful things because these are historical and these are things that you know we have to challenge in whatever little way we can and uh, i think just deflecting away from you know what's my individual pain in that pain in that to what does it mean as a work of art like putting my center out of it i don't know i don't know if it makes sense but that's what i did mm-hmm. to go through it well i guess uh, you know to counteract the popular narrative that you know men of the men of the left are generally supposed to be progressive in a sense uh, you know the husband of the narrator is uh, is a monster and he comes from an he comes from an ideology that or a part of political political side that's supposed to be progressive and i guess one of the things about again the, the book challenges that notion that irrespective of what ideology you have you the patriarchy because we live in a patriarchal world the patriarchy and the violence associated men still manages to come through irrespective uh yes yes um i can i think a lot of it is one of those things is that obviously you know there's a white gaze and i say this because you know like whenever we uh, i'm with a white person at this moment so yeah it's uh, <laughs> but whenever we talk about you know a country like you know india for instance uh, white people would like to center the question of sanitation yes know? because it's a prism with which we see all our problems even though it's one of many 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 problems and that, because that's a way in which they would reduce you into something you know like unclean people or you know people who cannot wash their hands in the middle of a pandemic this kind of you know easy off hand approaches and i think partly i speak about white gays here in, and you know or when they have to talk about south africa they'd be like you know number one thing they can talk about is corruption i'm sure mm-hmm. yes with white white address other people's issues in, in this completely absorbs them also of any responsibility because once they say you know you're on team person all the years that they spent in your country polluting them exploiting them constantly and things and it's just fundamentally anti-sanitation problem but going back to this i think there's an element like just as this white gaze is also a certain gaze in terms of how people and look at you know the perpetrators of violence so one of the things that this is always an uneducated person it's a peasant type or it's like you know a country brute kind of person you know maybe a guy is not educated it happens to also an uneducated women so you know so these are people who have not yet entered modern civilization it cannot happen to you know somebody who sits at a table like our own it cannot happen in our university so you know the idea that a huge state of denial but it's also the denial exists so one one of them which have gays so they want to look at look at this as you know, a lower class um, working class thing uh, with huge amounts of masculinity built into it but also hides the fact that this is happening among themselves so it's just amount of denial as well mm-hmm. and i think it is important to actually capture this because on the one hand uh, i personally like i personally grew up with a father who was a right winger for a long time so, so you know there's somebody who's traditional and somebody who's like putting some religious clothes and saying oh you have to cover yourself or you know 
you should be talking too much or you know you're like a girl and this is your place or whatever it is they say you still think you feel a little sympathy for them because they've been brainwashed by the religion but mm. there are progressive people who should really know everything who should be like you know against all of these things and then it's very interesting to see how patriarchy unfolds there because these guys are not going to say this is a religious they're not going to say this like that they're going to just like the traditional person says that you know you're going to burn in hell or you're like going to be crushed by a lorry because you did this and you don't listen to your parents or something like that whatever it is the, the equivalent of that would be like here they would be like going to some great marxist deconstruction of you know you your behavior and say oh this is class behavior this is how petty bourgeois women behave and for you sexuality is like this and like that and just like they basically going to come and say the same things that a very regressive traditional you know backward person would say but they would couch it all up with so much you know the language mm-hmm. of you know very political just because they don't want to come across at the same level as the other you know white people and i think i had to expose that and it was quite in- It's quite interesting because on the one hand you lose audience as well like nobody wants to all the leftists to be like why did she go to the left you know yeah 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 all the yeah. to be like oh why does she still keep talking about marxism and you know her marxist husband was beating her you know there's this idea that people also reduce everything into you know broader context yes you know? so yes I, and, and it, there's all of this in what we have to say the truth yeah tell me what thing you know I, I, it made me also think about how it, it plays so much in terms of our culture in terms of how we speak about you know survivors of of sexual violence and abuse and stuff like whenever a, a really famous man gets you know uh, exposed for some sort of violence there's a huge uh, because the narrative is built around what you said someone who's uneducated and so forth so forth people have a problem being able to associate that man who's supposedly successful and famous and whatever it is to acts of violence itself so it 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 falls into that as well yeah there's there's that aspect but also there's always the other aspect but the more famous the man is and the more powerful the man is it also becomes um uh it's sort of justifying this as well by saying things like Oh what did she do maybe she did something what did she do that made such a nice man lose his temper you know mm-hmm. so it's more as an anger management problem than like uh, actually oppressive uh, actual oppression and patriarchy and you know misogyny and all of that another thing that uh the book does is that um I mean it's set obviously within an Indian community and it but it it just so highlights I mean the comes larger conversation is about violence in relationships but obviously because you come from an Indian context you're writing within an Indian community but it also shows how our Indian community responds to the violence in an intimate relationship and how they themselves also become a part of that violence Oh yes um yeah 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 I think I think it's a very very specific Indian book it can be very modern it can be very like you know ultra left orthodox in terms of what it discusses it can be very feminist very poetic blah blah all of that but what's in the heart of the Indian book because nowhere else in the world are women who walk out of marriage is so stigmatized mm. nowhere else in the yes. world women have to stay with it like you know the, the I really want to bang my head against a wall for every time you know some western european women who discovered i don't know feminism when she was 25 in a pub or something comes and tells me oh it's an economic thing you know so women had money she would walk away no this this whole idea is that they give it to like or well, if you have a bank account you'll walk away no 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 it's just to understand how culture operates yeah mm-hmm. and, and for me it's very important to say like you could walk away the idea was that you know you could walk away on day one on day two but the whole question is that you know what do you do to your own relationship with your parents you know mm. so these relationships you know throw to the wayside you know what i mean like this is somebody who's taking care of you for 30 years of your life or whatever three decades of your life so you you either have to bring them to understand what you're going through or have to wait for that you know also because that's that's the kind of social performance that it i'm mm. going to walk out i know that but i have to walk out when you know the situation is right kind of thing or you know my parents are on my side or there's a bit some element of sympathy but that also takes you know mental preparation this is like 
because your parents don't want you walking back. They want you. They would be like, you know, you just have to bear with whatever is happening, and because you know it's a bad name. But I really think a lot of people say saying very bad relationships because they're like, oh my younger sister has to get married. What's going to happen to the family? The younger brother just got married. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how will the public be perceived? You know, this is so much ostracization that's going to happen as a result of this, and I think we are really caught up in that because we have so much stigma about somebody who gets, you know, who walks out of a marriage, and you know, it's it's just not it's just not the same elsewhere. Like people here are like leaving and getting into relationships all the time. Nobody blames them for being on, you know, their relationship number four or relationship number forty. Like it's mm-hmm. their business. But yeah, in India, I mean, it's just not the same. Especially public relationships, especially something that you know, like a marriage, you just don't do, you just don't leave it in the same way. Yeah, and another it leads into why another reason why you'll stay that you also love the person that you kind that's abusing you. So you kind of also hope that maybe you know tomorrow will be a different day and they'll change as well. So it's a very 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 complex reason. I'm sure, I'm sure it is for people who absolutely are in love, but also I think. We're also in love with ourselves, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So one of the things about you know, I think staying in in trauma or you know in difficult relationships is also the idea that you somehow think you will survive it. Mm. You somehow think you can change the other person. Yes. You somehow that you know that the other person is going to see reason because of how fabulously good you are, and uh, and I think that you know. Like some things are like procedural, isn't it? But you have to exhaust these options because everybody. This is how decisions are taken. Like nobody can take a decision like, I think it's wrong, so I'm going to walk out because that you could do with any argument with any person. So, mm. but that's not how it functions. So I think this is the idea that somehow people are like, and you also I think because because of you know the way Indian men have been morally coddled by their mothers yes. and by all of this. Seen as you know very infantile and immature. You also have this additional trap when you're Indian women that you're like, oh maybe he doesn't know better. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's my job to to make him realize that you know, uh, you know things are like not as he thinks they are. Yeah. Maybe just being you know maybe yep. just being childish. We're doing so much not only you know like physical housekeeping around them, but also this mental housekeeping in terms of. Oh, this poor guy, you know, yeah. baby, and I think a lot of us are dealing with mommy's babies. So. Yeah, yeah, we 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 are sort of like groomed to think that it's our job to help them or rehabilitate them to be better towards us, in that sense. Yeah, I, I get that. I get that. I get that totally. Another, you mentioned these words in the book, which again, I guess, coming back to the Indian community, which hit me so hard. It's so powerful. Um, silence has been put. in on a pedestal in our community and it's it's like i would say it's one of the tenets of being part of an in community irrespective of whether you muslim or christian or hindu or whatever it is yet you don't come a good wife doesn't complain i think part of it is that mm-hmm. part of it is also that uh, you know that um, you know you the other thing is that yeah if you say somebody i'm getting into arguments the first idea is also that you know Don't engage. Just be silent. Like this storm is going to pass. But there's lots, lots. I think there's so many other types of silences in terms of you don't discuss violence. You don't. You don't take blame. You don't ask the other person how they actually are doing. So I think yeah. But that's not the only type of silencing, isn't it? The other types mm. of silencing are pretending like they've never heard of you or your work or that doesn't have any relevance in their life. But I think this is also another way in which you know a community can enforce silence. By basically erasing a person, and I think that's larger project of erasure that you know mm-hmm. that's going on. But I think there's so much violence in erasure, and I think silence is one of these ways in which this erasure is perpetuated. Uh, you mentioned in another interview, I think this was interview was about Gypsy Goddess, but it's to do with publishing and I guess expectations within the publishing industry and about the credibility of violence in fiction, in that. when you when you were writing about the massacre and you were writing about this person that commits you know such violence and stuff and, and when you were submitting it obviously to the publication for publication and you were asked to like make him a bit more humanistic and i wanted you to perhaps speak about why it is that like writers are asked to make you know violent characters or people more 
human, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I, I got that when I hit you as well, and I had to fight with my editor, um, editor on that. So the idea is that you know this is so this uh, you know this is so you know this just stands on your skin. Now this is like so horrid and so you know uh, you know even if it's the, the book itself is very restrained, but you know even if it's to actually articulate the kind of things a violent person would say and. Um, I think even in this novel, there's this idea that you know you have to show some human side of this person. It's just the redeeming, you know, they're seen as, you know, as having a soft side. And I think uh, I I do think that there there are two aspects to this. I think one of these is that these people want this in real life. People want this in fiction. Like you know, just tell us that everything was not so bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's because we are, we are hopeful people. I think there's hope, you know, hope and seeing the positive side is very inherent in all of us, you know, there's certain optimism, irrespective of, you know, we can be uh, card-carrying pessimists, but we still want to see something nice that can be uplifting about everybody. And I think it's a good thing to see the good side of people, as long as we are aware of, you know, the dangers of other things like violence and, you know, or let's say, mm. fascism or whatever it is that we're fighting. So we just can't be happy with, you know, the good side or the, the you know, like, yeah, capitalism also, for instance, has very smiley face, happy face, nice ad campaigns. With you know what capitalism is doing to the planet is very bad. So as long as we are aware of you know all the all the negative aspects and understand that this positive face sometimes leads to mask the mm. actual actual face. So that I think that's the other aspect of it. So mm. even if positive aspects exist, what do they exist for? They exist a lot, oftentimes to hide these um, hide these absolute atrocious aspects of you know the person character or problem you're talking about. The other is that within fiction, you also have a question of credibility. So people are credible only when, you know, they have a plus side and a negative side. So they must be a balance of both. Things are credible only when we can believe that they happen. So a bad thing cannot happen to a person on the first day. It has to happen eventually, like, you know, where's the plot scare. So things have to escalate, like, and I don't think, it, like, that's another reason why when people are like, oh, is it a fiction or memoir? I'm like, it's not memoir, because memoir is basically Sarota diary every day until you read it, you know? Or even if I construct it, like, but in fiction, things have to escalate. Mm. Real life, it doesn't go like that. In fiction, it has to be like day one, some tension, day two, tension goes more, day three, tension. Because we still believe that, you know, things happen chronologically. In life, it doesn't have to happen like that, you know? Life can be absolutely anachronistic because life doesn't listen to the rules of fiction. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, this is also where we come from. Just as the question of credibility is so central to fiction, mm-hmm. I think the question of, you know, credible characters, uh, um, which means to have a positive I'm, side or at least a side, is very essential. I wanted to go to uh, a bit about your work in translation. I don't know if it's a misconception, but there's this notion, and I've heard other authors uh, who are multilingual, much like yourself, said that they they say that it's very it's very difficult to, to to capture the true essence of a novel in terms of translation, and that there's always something lost. And I want to know if you agree with that, and also what are the what are the other challenges you think that comes with respect to translating works of uh, literature? Yeah, I think there's an essence that's lost of truth. And um, but I think that um, as somebody who's a Tamil and writes a lot of Tamil into her English books, you know, is a certain. So is Tamil is being Tamil, for instance, just a word, or is it a certain experience, or is it a certain, is it a certain, you know, a little intimate dictionary of you know things, places, names, memories, you know, associations, all of this. And I think that, you know, when, even though I write in English, I think my novels are in their hearts very Tamil, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that, uh, so for me, even my own process of writing appears like a process of translating because I'm writing one reality in another language. And I don't think I'm losing anything. So, and I do translate, like, I think the last book I'm, I, I just finished translating is. Uh, you know, the poet Salma's novel, it's called Women Dreaming. And, uh, yeah, so I've tried to capture a lot of it um, as well as possible I can, as nice as possible I can in English. And are some nuances lost? Yes, but um, 
I still do believe that. Uh, yeah, you can do justice. I think everything is locked. Like I think from one reader to another reader, for instance, some readers get everything. Some readers get eighty percent of the book. Some readers get forty percent. Mm. So I think the question is that you know, in terms of something's always lost in you know the this author to reader thing. I think some readers get more than what the author says. It's possible. Mm. So yeah, I think that you know, any kind of you know literary production that turns this, even from the beginning, lopsided. So obviously this is going to happen in translation after that. You're also one of the writers who have often have felt, I think, the true cost or guess a cost to their words. I mean in when you wrote your first book, uh, A Poetry Touch, and it was translated into Malayalam, there was a huge outcry in India. And then also when you had that experience at a festival, I think it was at a university, uh, it was a beef, a beef eating protest, I think. Um, you tweeted about your experiences that you faced, the violence that you experienced. And yeah, you've you've received a lot of violence in return from, for that. Yeah, I think it's slightly, I think it's slightly distressing, if not heartbreaking, to see you know your books being banned. Mm. And also because yeah, people disagreed with a poem on Gandhi, which is there. And yeah, Gandhi possibly has quite some interesting history. Um, not only for me, but also you know for you in South Africa. Mm -hmm. So the right wing took offense. The BJP took offense, so you know, the, a lot of the Congress took offense. So, mm -hmm. you know, Alexander Gandhi was, you know, they saw me as attacking him and therefore, you know, not patriotic enough and so mm -hmm. on. It comes from a complex history, it comes from the history of what he did to Dari people, mm -hmm. um, was, um, whether he betrayed their struggle for political aspirations. So it does come from, you know, a political place. What was his opinion on women? What was his opinion on sex? What was his opinion on you know, mandatory celibacy as a form of truth seeking. So it was a lot of these. And, uh, you know, um, I think, you know, what is his opinion on workers, for instance? He was supported by the biggest capitalists at this time. So, yeah, but the question is once you start asking these questions, you become unpopular. Just mm. fine. But, you know, sometimes this is, um, I think, with the tweets as well, for instance, I had tweeted about this beekeeping festival and there were like, you know, crazy amount of tweets that called for, you know, gang rape or, you know, acid attacks and whatever. And I've learned to, I, I think, in a sense, I'm, of course, um, uh, I'm like, I think at, at the moment it happens, I'm a little bit perturbed, obviously, like any other person. But on the other hand, I'm always happy because what I write, and believe me, writing the often doesn't produce results like that, causes a conversation to happen. And in a culture where, you know, earlier we talked about silence, right? Mm. I mean, in a culture where we like to hide everything in the layers and layers and layers and layers of silence. We just, we basically smother everything with silence. It's very important to provoke people into this conversation. So, yeah, people would always say, oh, Mina is very provocative, or she was saying this for, you know, the sake of creating a controversy. But what do you do in a culture of silence? You have to say things that provoke people respond, which can start a dialogue, which can start people to unpack, which can expose people. And I think, yeah, for me, I've never felt a second or a minute of regret about anything I've written or anything I've tweeted or anything I've said. Because even when they appear to offend or even when they appear to provoke, I am very, I'm playing this game. I'm playing this game like you have to break your silence. And it's going to make you break your silence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, Mina, I wanted to ask you about um, three books that you have an emotional connection with, either at this time in your life or for all time. Um, I think the first would be Dr. Baker's um, Annihilation of Craft. Yes. I think I read this book and I just wanted to go and burn the world. So, <laughs> the second is The God of Small Things by Arunthi Roy. Um, I absolutely learned what magic words are. So, yeah, the second book would be hers. And I think the third book, <laughs> so it's quite funny that I say this, but yeah, it seriously is a book that really speaks to me. Um, it's Lenin on the National Question. And 
And now, because we're coming to the end of this show, the, the interview or the conversation at least, I wanted to ask you, is there, has there been a question with regards to when I hit you that you haven't been asked, but you wish you had been asked? If so, what is that question and what is the answer to that question? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I I I kept thinking about this. <laughs> I kept thinking about this, but I I couldn't figure out. Like I think there was all kinds of invasive questions. Believe me, they were asking all kinds of invasive questions. But I can't think of you know one unanswered unanswered question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the questions that people don't ask me, which I think are very interesting, are. The questions that people don't often ask, like this is, you know, coming mm. to the margin. So they're like, do you like to write in the morning? So do you like to, you know, like these kind of questions are always, like, I don't know, I'm at festivals, so people always ask white writers these kind of questions because they think that, you know, for them, this kind of thing yeah. is a big thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, I know, but that's that's why I asked you about your structure and your writing process in the beginning, because I'm also very interested. Like, are you a morning writer? But you said you I like. I'm so happy to talk about. No, but see, I was so happy to talk about process because this is the most I've talked about process anywhere in my whole 35 years of life. So thank you. For <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it's funny. Part of what I write in the next. What I write in the next book is actually about this. Just say that nobody discusses process with us. You know. Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny when I asked Arundhati Roy that question as well. She was also very stumped, and so she just said, "The she told me um, the the question no one's ever asked her was with how many chilies she can eat, and she just said the answers are a lot. So uh, that was that was what her response was at least. But yeah, um, I wonder now if you'd be able to um, give us a reading again from your choice, uh, any part of the novel. In a marriage, there's no such room to fool around. Everything has form and function. Everything belongs in its place. The peg on the clothesline, the gem clips on the table, the coat hanger in the closet, the women in the kitchen, the submissive between the sheets. I open the doors to step outside and watch the unending roads of rain. It's the relief in the despite that I seek from the sultriness of staying locked in. It's this rain that comes to me carrying the scent of long ago lovers. In rain, I hide my memories of happier days. In rain, I chant the names of men I loved. In rain, the body responds to me. This is just strange. Cut it the decor and the quiet of good Indian women. In rain, I hide the shame of the unexplained deafness between my legs. In rain, I drown the silence in my blood. In rain, I absolve myself of guilt. I'm wise. I'm chained to the state. I have made peace with life. It is this rain that tells me to run away in every way it can. Rain that comprehends my mystery. Rain that fills me with sadness and longing. Rain that throws the seeds of discord. Rain that sends me into irrevocable silences. Rain that informs this letter I write. Thank you so much, Meena. Thank you, too. When I Hit You is published by Atlantic Books. You have been listening to the Wonderful Words podcast. You can download this episode as well as other episodes of the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Wasimi Imam Saheb. Thank you for listening. Thank you.